This episode is sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law. Welcome to Big Law Business. I'm Josh Block. I'm joined by Casey Sullivan. What's up, Casey? Hi, Josh. If you're listening for the first time, this is a podcast about the business of law and the largest U.S. law firms. We're recording this episode on Friday, August 12th, and we're joined today by Paul Barrett of Bloomberg Business Week. Welcome, Paul. Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. Today, we're going to talk about the law firm Gibson Dunn. But before we get to that, Paul, can you tell us about your background? I know you attended sure. law school uh, did you ever practice? Did you consider practicing? Well, I, I practiced uh, only as a pretend lawyer in the summers. And uh, after graduating from Harvard Law School in uh, 1987, I went straight to work for the Wall Street Journal, where I wrote about legal affairs, among other subjects, um, for uh, 18 years um, before joining the old Business Week owned by McGraw-Hill, which became Bloomberg Business Week uh, as of uh, December 2009. Has your legal education informed your journalism? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in, in multiple ways. I mean, there are periods of time when I covered the U.S. Uh, Justice Department, the U.S. Supreme Court as a beat reporter, and clearly having a formal legal background uh, helped me translate the legal materials into uh, a form of communication that the ordinary business person, the ordinary citizen would would understand. It's uh, helped me decode the behavior of lawyers uh, and law firms because I know so many people, both people who I literally went to law school with and people, you know, who uh, I mean, went to law school and will uh, give me a certain extra measure of respect um, because they know I know what they're talking about. Um, so I have always, uh, e even as I've moved away from being, uh, strictly speaking, a legal affairs reporter, I've always fallen back on legal subjects um, as a, a uh, an area to look for um, fascinating stories that take readers uh, to the intersection of law, social issues, politics, and business and finance. I remember your 2013 Business Week cover, which was about big law. The cover was was it was the classic joke. You know, what do you call a bunch right. of lawyers? <laughs> right. That was um, that was about the uh, the decline and fall of the Howery Law Firm in Washington D.C. How much are you able to do business of law type reporting specifically? Well, um, Business Week is not a legal publication, so it's not like the editors of Business Week want to see a major feature story every week or, e or even every month. But, um, you know, with some reasonable pacing, um, there is some interest in how lawyers uh, make a living. And, um, you know, more recently, for example, uh, I did a piece about how David Boyce has built his law firm from a, a boutique to a 300 plus lawyer uh, powerhouse law firm that is able somehow to cut across uh, the usual practice lines and represent both big plaintiffs and defendants in corporate uh, litigation. Um, and I'm actually working on uh, a fresh story about a law firm to be named later because I'm not far enough into the piece uh, to be talking about it publicly. Um, but sometime in the early fall, I'll have a, another dissection of a law firm uh, that at, attempts to give readers uh, some additional insight into how uh, lawyers uh, make a living and what difference that makes to uh, business and the larger society. 
do you get pushback when you put, pitch a story like that? Is that is that do you have to? I mean, we always say a good story is a good story, right? Right. Sure. Uh, it, it's really the latter philosophy that that rules. When I see something that I think is surprising, and when there's been a little bit of uh, time uh, since the last uh, major story of that sort that I've done, um, then I go ahead and pitch it. But I do smaller stories, particularly uh, uh, exclusive stories for um, Bloomberg.com, our sister website, uh, all the time. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, you know, recent uh, coverage of uh, litigation involving the Gibson Dunn firm is what you know gave birth to this podcast episode. So uh, I do smaller stories that uh, pertain to litigation and refer to uh, big law firms all the time. Again, particularly for our online. Outlet. A few weeks back, we spoke to Julie Tribman of The American Lawyer, and we talked about the law firm KNL Gates. I'll leave a link to that podcast in the show notes. That firm had a lot going on internally and had been covered in the legal media. Today, we want to focus on Gibson Dunn. Casey's reported on them, and you wrote a book about the Chevron case where you reported on Gibson Dunn a lot. Law of the Jungle is your book. By way of background on that firm, uh, Gibson Dunn is one of the largest U.S. law firms. They were founded in 1890 in Los Angeles. They have over 1,200 lawyers. In the American Lawyers Annual Law Firm Rankings in 2015, they were 11th in gross revenue, 9th in revenue per lawyer, and 10th in profits per partner, just shy of $3.2 million per partner. They're a global law firm with, I've seen different reports, I think it's 19 offices. Among the well-known attorneys who work there are Ted Olson, the former Solicitor General under George W. Bush, who in 2012 was believed to bill at the highest known rate at that time of $1,800 an hour. So give me some background, some additional background, and we'll get into more specifics on the firm, but tell me more background about Gibson Dunn. Uh, This firm, while it's uh, viewed at times as a general purpose uh, national law firm, is really um, primarily a litigation firm. Um, More than half uh, of its lawyers and well more than half of its profits come from litigation. That's its heritage, and and that's where um, most of its core activity takes place. Which is not to say that that it doesn't have uh, uh, corporate clients. It represents all kinds of uh, California-based banks, and it has a very uh, robust practice in representing private equity firms, uh, such as the Invest Corp firm that's based in Bahrain, and uh, the Lone Star private equity firm uh, in Texas. Uh, But when you talk about uh, Gibson Dunn, you're usually talking about big, high-stakes pieces of of litigation um, where the firm is known for actually taking risks, as it did at several points in the Chevron uh, litigation, um, and more often than not succeeding when it rolls the dice and takes a very ambitious uh, point of view. You mentioned uh, Ted Olson, who is their appellate ace and certainly one of the the best-known appellate lawyers uh, in the country, argues before the Supreme Court, was in a counterintuitive sense, since he is a uh, political conservative, was involved along with David Boyce in the gay marriage uh, litigation and won a huge victory there. Other well-known litigators include his protege, uh, Ted Boutros, who is the co-chairman of their litigation department, Randy Mastro, who is the other co-chairman of the litigation department, who's based in New York. Boutros is based in Los Angeles. And their overall managing partner is a, a corporate 
partner named Ken Dorn, who's been in that role since the early 2000s. And so what I've heard is um, very well admired in terms of the management of the firm and is likely to stay uh, in that position until the age of 65 when within um, uh, Gibson Dunn, you have to uh, step back from those types of management commitments. Gibson Dunn, um, whether you like them or hate them, and certainly they have their adversaries uh, in the Chevron case, using that just as an example, they have been vilified by uh, lawyers for the Ecuadorian plaintiffs in that large oil pollution liability uh, litigation. But um, whatever you think about the positions they take uh, in court, um, it is uh, a firm that is known for being um, well-managed, very profitable. And I I wanted to just mention this one quote, uh, which is the kind of quote that uh, any law firm would like to uh, uh, have uh, uh, said about them. Um, This is uh, uh, Hugh Pate, the general counsel of Chevron, who told American lawyer recently, if there's a better managed large law firm in the world, it hasn't been pointed out to me. Um, and you know that that takes you beyond the realm of individual superstar lawyers to the larger institution, um, which, according to that very uh, reliable source, uh, uh, the general counsel of you know one of the largest energy companies in the world, uh, says that this is a, a well-managed uh, firm that he relies on. A little bit more along the lines of uh, sort of the management of the firm. Um, one thing is that. It has a 15-member executive committee, um, all of whom are equity partners in the firm except for six. Um, Six partners are in equity equity partners, and um, one thing that Randy Master told me, uh, one of their top partners, is that their compensation model is pretty compressed. Um, He said that it was below um, five to one, which is the ratio between the top-earning partners and the low-earning partners, um, which is a pretty tight. Uh, spread today where you see firms like Paul Weiss being really aggressive in their lateral um, hiring efforts and poaching partners from other firms for really um, uh, impressive pay packages. And, you know, one thing that um, they have said sort of all along is that they they won't do that. They recruited Ted Olson back to the firm um, back in 2004 without doing that, Randy told me. And, um, you know, that has been sort of like part of their firm culture, uh, which has been different than the way that the market has been heading over the past few years. And, Another thing, well, though, though it's tenth highest profits per partner at, at three point two ish per partner, right? So, I mean, that the spread, you know, we we have a, we have a, some reference, right? <laughs> Absolutely, um, and it's a fair point. But but one thing that he did say that was uh, different is that their top equity partners don't get bonuses at all, which is different than what some other firms have done internally to sort of. Um, you know, free up their ability to compensate partners. He called it a, a yo-yoing of partners that um, happens at other firms where sometimes they'll hit it out of the park and other times they'll, um, you know, sink down to lower into the compensation structure. Um, so stability is within their business model. Well, going back to the management, you know, the positive um, comments about their management style, is it interesting that the chairman of this firm isn't a litigation partner. Well, I think uh, the, the, the firm's larger, you know, 
management uh, uh, establishment saw that the uh, the skills that make someone an excellent litigator are not necessarily the skills um, that you'd want in the equivalent of the CEO of the institution. And uh, therefore, this, uh, at the time, relatively young uh, corporate partner, uh, Ken Dorn, was uh, was chosen. And apparently, he has proved himself so effective in that management role that he's stayed on uh, for a duration that exceeds uh, the, the typical duration of a managing partner. And so far as I know from talking to lawyers there, is expected to remain there for the indefinite future. One of the things that we, when we talk to GCs that we hear a lot is, you know, the struggles that law firms are having with their billing rates. And then there's always the caveat, except with bet the ranch or bet the farm litigation. This is that type of firm, yes? Because usually it's followed by Skadden and Kirkland and other New York firms that are the firms that you hear named after that, just kind of in reputationally. Uh, so I'm wondering why we, you don't always hear that answer, yet I know they win these awards as best litigation shop. I, I think they, they are f- uh, for sure. And I think part of the reason you, you may not hear them invoked is because they are not primarily a New York firm. I think while they obviously have a very large um, New York office and they are uh, in any by any sense of the word a, a national and a global law firm, um, they are not seen as part of the New York establishment and therefore may not just jump to people's minds. But you know they've got a Washington um, office that is involved in all kinds of very high stakes litigation. That's where Ted Olson uh, is based. Um, and uh, another uh, leading litigator uh, with the firm who's in Washington is Eugene Scalia, the son of the late Justice Antonin Scalia. And um, Eugene Scalia has become one of the leading, if not the leading lawyers that uh, financial and corporate interests go to when they want to challenge federal regulations. He's been responsible for a whole series of cases that have uh, chipped away, for example, at the Dodd-Frank uh, market reform law uh, and, and has, has turned that into a, a franchise that he basically owns out of their Washington office. So uh, I, I think uh, the um, this is a firm that, that can command um, premium uh, rates um, because it, it has this, this proven record of, of success. The only thing that I would add is that it's considered, Gibson Dunn is really considered one of four top law firms that were founded in LA that have sort of grown outside of its LA roots over the, over the past decades and have become you know one of the world's top law firms. The other three are uh, Latham and Watkins, um, uh, Paul Hastings, and O'Melveny and Myers. Um, and you know when you look at the four firms' trajectories over time, you know Gibson Dunn and Latham, you know have really done far better. Um, you know I think that Paul Hastings is also you know in the in the in the AMLA 20 somewhere in there. Uh, O'Melveny is uh, AMLA 40, 45 ish, um, but but Gibson is really you know, leads the pack. Honing in on their litigation a little bit more, one of the things that I was reading about is the way that they prepare to go to trial. I read that they involve appellate attorneys early. Uh, maybe that's common practice now, but I've, you know, read that they were one of those that pioneered that. Have you, have you, do you guys know anything about that? Yeah, I think that that may reflect the influence um, within the firm of 
of people like Olson and uh, Ted Boutros, um, who are not um, sort of distant eggheads who sit isolated in an ivory tower and are called upon um, when everything's fallen apart and a case is up on appeal, uh, but instead are are central characters in the ma- in the management of the firm, uh, reputationally are are very well known, and I think. Uh, that has contributed to their involvement in strategic discussions, um, as you said, very early in cases. I know from having covered the uh, Chevron uh, oil pollution liability litigation um, that both Boutros and Ted Olson have been in and out of that case throughout its long duration, um, neither functioning at the trial level, but functioning at the strategic level and handling uh, appeals. What else have you learned about them and how they work through your reporting on Chevron? Well, in the Chevron case, which uh, uh, Gibson Dunn parachuted into relatively late in the case in 2009-2010, its role in that case was to turn the tables on plaintiff's lawyers who in 2011 won uh, what initially was a uh, $19 billion verdict against Chevron over uh, oil pollution in the Amazon region of Ecuador. And it was uh, decided that uh, Gibson Dunn would come in and investigate the plaintiff's lawyer and try to change the subject matter of the case from the underlying liability where its client Chevron lost in the Ecuadorian courts and change the subject matter to the conduct of the main plaintiff's lawyer, a New York activist and attorney named Stephen Donziger. And they did that um, very effectively. um, And I would say, you know, employed brute force filing (laughs) multiple, multiple litigations all around the United States to force discovery that eventually they were able to uh, bring to the federal courts in New York and file a racketeering case under the RICO statute against Donziger, accusing him of being a racketeer, a, a kind of a seen by many people as an outlandish uh, strategy to kind of collaterally attack the Ecuadorian judgment by going after the American plaintiff's lawyer back in the United States. Um, but the, the strategy was successful. They they swung for the fences and they, they hit a home run. They won a... a very uh, important verdict in 2014 from the trial judge who found that the Ecuadorian uh, judgment was uh, basically null and void because it was based on fraud, falsified uh, evidence, uh, coercion, and even bribery. Just last Monday, the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit uh, here in New York uh, affirmed the 2014 uh trial judge's uh, ruling and uh, held for Chevron, represented by Gibson Dunn. The uh, appellate argument was handled by Ted Olson. Uh, The trial had been handled by uh, Randy Mastro. Uh, And the the Second Circuit held uh, across the board uh, for for Chevron. What's the significance of that ruling in this case? Does this mean it's all over now or what's what's next? It, It is not uh, all over because it will never be all over in this case. This case has a, a strange radioactive or magical uh, aspect to it, I think, that will uh, consume 
the lawyers involved in it for the rest of their lifetimes. Uh, but what, it, what the uh, significance of the Second Circuit's ruling is that as of right now, the plaintiffs in this case, Mr. Donziger and his Ecuadorian, uh, his clients, um, cannot enforce their judgment here in in the United States. That's clear. And they cannot profit from it, even if it's technically enforced in another country. Now, Donziger says this is not the end of the story. He continues to deny wrongdoing. I, he hasn't said so yet, but I think he's. it's likely that he will appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, open question as to whether the U.S. Supreme Court wants to wade into this very idiosyncratic and fact-specific uh, case. Uh, but meanwhile, just next month in September, uh, Donziger's clients, represented by Canadian attorneys, will be appearing in a courtroom in Toronto and asking the Canadian judiciary to enforce the Ecuadorian verdict. Uh, and the reason they're doing that is because Chevron has extensive assets in Canada that if the uh, Canadian judiciary were to recognize and then enforce the Ecuadorian verdict, there would be all kinds of uh, equipment and assets to sell off for the benefit of the Ecuadorian plaintiffs. Now, you might ask, why are they up in Canada? Why not enforce it in Ecuador? The answer to that is that Chevron has said, we will never pay a dime on this judgment because it's fraudulent. Um, and Chevron has no assets in Ecuador. The pollution in question occurred in the 70s and the 80s and was actually associated with Texaco, uh, a, an oil company that Chevron acquired in 2001. So there's nothing in, in Ecuador that can be seized and sold off. So the plaintiffs have gone around the world, Canada, Argentina, Brazil, and are seeking to enforce their judgment there. And in enforcing this judgment, we saw Chevron, I think it was a couple of years ago, knock out the law firm that was tasked to enforce it, right? Patton Boggs, wasn't that the their role yes. in all of this. So, um, you know, they produced a, a $15 million settlement. Extraordinary situation where uh, Patton Boggs, which was hired by the plaintiff's firm to help them, as you say, try to enforce this someplace in the world, at the time a substantial firm unto itself, um, got into litigation directly with Chevron. Chevron represented by Gibson Dunn. This again uh, reflects the risk-taking uh, proclivities of, of Gibson Dunn, that they would uh, go so far as to uh, uh, pursue uh, uh, litigation on a tangent where they go after the big law firm on the other side, um, but they succeeded. Uh, ultimately, uh, uh, Patton Boggs backed down um, withdrew from the case and to underscore the uh, abject surrender um, actually wrote a check for $15 million to Chevron that can only be uh, uh, interpreted as some type of uh, very unusual apology and please don't hurt us anymore we're out of here and not too long after that Patton Boggs was absorbed by another firm and for all practical purposes has disappeared as, as a standalone law firm. And they issued like a statement of regret, I remember. That's right. That, um, Extraordinary. I personally have never seen a, a big law firm do something like that. So Patton Boggs was absorbed by Squire Sanders. How much would you say that that 
was prompted by the Chevron litigation. Like, how much did Chevron actually and Gibson Dunn put them out of business? Um, I think it was one of several reasons. Patton Boggs was um, suffering some defections uh, that it may or may not have been related to the Chevron litigation, but certainly by the time uh, litigation had been joined in earnest with in the form of Chevron versus Patton Boggs, with Chevron making it clear that it was going to spend whatever it needed to spend to do damage to Patton Boggs and back them off this case. That accelerated the defection process and had partners leaving Patton Boggs to sort of get out while the getting was good. And that defection, as you as you guys know very well, um, becomes kind of a self-confirming cycle where if the guy down the hall is bailing out to go to another law firm, then you might be, you as a, a rainmaking partner might say, I better get myself and my 10 associates out of here before my value uh, goes down. And that's what happened. And that's what uh, what drove Patton Boggs into the uh, arms of the Squire Sanders firm. Um, and it, it, it was an, a really striking thing to see because for 50 years, Patton Boggs had been one of the m- most easily identifiable a law franchises in Washington, D.C. as a, both a law firm and a lobbying entity. So this was not some uh, minor marginal firm uh, that got essentially put out of business. It was a, a very significant firm. And it, as I said, disappeared into the, uh, in, into the, the uh, you know, much larger uh, establishment of the Cleveland-based uh, Squires firm. And I should have said essentially out of business because right. I'm sure that the patent bogs would come back and say, well, we're still in business, but at, at another firm. But That's right. Um, but but it, a far reduced number of attorneys. By the time the merger actually took place, uh, patent bogs was down to something in excess of 300 lawyers. I think they, you know, before all of this started, they were something in excess of 500 lawyers. So the, 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 the patent bogs firm was eroding rapidly and dangerously and was basically forced to to merge with the larger firm. And I remember that as a result of the settlement, two of the partners at least agreed to be deposed, I think, in this whole Chevron litigation, um, James Tyrell and right. another partner. Um, do we know anything about whatever came of that? Did that help... Um, Chevron's case strategy. I don't think it it was significant um, in in the larger scheme of things, but it's it's really a, another you know that's an even more granular illustration. Um, Jim Tyrell was basically had to leave Patton Boggs and went to another firm. So you really saw a kind of a scorched earth approach that Gibson Dunn was taking. And this applies not just to Patton Boggs, but to basically every expert lawyer financier associated with the plaintiff's side uh, eventually uh, uh, disavowed that cause and backed away from the cause um, in, in part because of the fraud findings against Donziger and the fact that the plaintiff's uh, operation was found by U.S. federal courts um, to be corrupt, but also because Chevron was bringing so much pressure to bear um, through the good offices of Gibson Dunn. In addition to Chevron, Gibson Dunn is behind a lot of the litigation that does make the news. We sure. hear a lot of. So, can you tell me about some of those other uh, representations? Um, just in you know, in 
it, just this year, to, you could look at it, there are uh, several uh, cases worth noting. Gibson Dunn uh, represented HP in a Titanic uh, contract law dispute uh, with Oracle, where Oracle was found to have violated a contract to support software for one of HP's chips, and that was uh, led to a, uh, a jury verdict of uh, more than three billion dollars, which, even for these big companies, is is real money. Uh, another um, very high visibility case uh, that uh, Gibson Dunn was involved with uh, had to do with uh, the firm representing Apple in Apple's standoff um, with the FBI over whether Apple would be forced to uh, decode the encryption uh, on uh, 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 on an iPhone that was uh, previously owned by a, a terrorism suspect. And both Ted Olson and Ted Boutros were involved with that, a dispute that eventually fizzled out when the FBI uh, basically gave up and just figured out another way to to, de- to decode the, the, to phone, unlock the phone, to unlock it. Yes, that's a better term. Um, uh, uh, but that the, the fact that Apple would turn to Gibson Dunn in, 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 in that most uh, high visibility on the front pages of every website and uh, traditional media outlet type case, I think says a lot. Obviously, Apple can choose any firm it wants to in the world. Um, and the fact that they would choose uh, Gibson Dunn, uh, I think, goes to confirm some of the themes we've been talking about in Apple in recent years has retained uh, Gibson Dunn repeatedly in uh, in patent litigation uh, that Apple has been engaged with uh, against Samsung. So th- this is a pattern of these very big uh, companies who can choose any law firm they want to choose uh, and have uh, chosen to go with Gibson Dunn. There was one other case that just caught my eye of a slightly different sort, uh, not a big... Uh, mainstream company, but the uh, somewhat uh, eccentric and uh, quite fascinating private equity magnate Lynn Tilton and her patriarch uh, partners uh, recently, uh, she's in a lot of trouble with the uh, with the SEC. And in the midst of this trouble, um, she actually dropped the Skadden Arps firm and turned to Gibson Dunn as a substitute firm to represent her in uh, the federal courts in New York, um, saying that it was time for her basically to upgrade uh, her legal representation. So again, if you're in a position where you're uh, replacing Skadden Arps in uh, uh, hard-nosed litigation like that, obviously you have a good reputation. And should add that back in the Chevron case that we were talking about, when Gibson Dunn came in, into that case in 2009-2010, uh, they essentially replaced shoulder to side the Jones Day firm that had been uh, the main outside law firm representing Chevron. So to some extent, uh, Gibson Dunn is seen as a firm you might go to even if you didn't choose them in the first instance. But when things kind of go bad and you need uh, uh, to be rescued, uh, you, you call on Gibson Dunn to come up with some type of innovative strategy uh, to get you out of the soup. One thing that I've heard time and time again from the firm that sort of surprises me, or, or maybe maybe not because this word is sort of overused in big law, is the word culture. Um, I guess surprises me about hearing uh, this from a, a high-stakes litigation firm that's known for its scorched-earth uh, litigation tactics. Um, that word is brought up not only by uh, partners who um, will always say that, but also by you know headhunters that I spoke with mm-hmm. uh, before coming on here. I was interested to see 
in, in American Lawyer that uh, on what American Lawyer calls its A-list, which is a much more subjective measure of, of law firms that includes revenue per lawyer, uh, pro bono hours, diversity, and uh, associate satisfaction as measured, I suppose, by surveys that American Lawyer does, that Gibson Dunn ranked number four in the nation on that list, uh, tied with Paul Hastings. Uh, and that's a, a very high ranking. And so I guess, uh, you know, there, there must be something to this notion that Gibson Dunn at least has a cohesive culture, if not necessarily one where, as, a, as I say, as a lawyer in your 20s or 30s, you, you can expect to have a, a healthy, uh, you know, work-life balance. I think that would be unrealistic. And when you get put on a case at a law firm like Gibson Dunn, you're going to be sacrificing your body to the case or finding a new job. A couple of real examples to the culture point. One thing that uh, Randy Mastro, um, again, uh, one of the top partners at, at the firm who handles a lot of these cases, uh, said to me was, you know, in 2008, 2009, uh, they were one of the few uh, major law firms that held back on uh, widespread layoffs. Um, maybe that's... <clears throat> how the firm, because of how the firm was structured and um, the type of work that they were getting. Um, but, um, you know, what he said was, you know, it was supposed to be a statement for, um, you know, how they felt about the firm and keeping lawyers together. Um, another thing that I, I had heard was that when they bring people on board, um, they actually look at the law school transcripts of partners who have been practicing for like 20 years, um, which strikes me as sort of um, different. Um, <laughs> yes, that's that's quite extraordinary. You'd think that after uh, 15 or 20 years in practice, uh, that would no longer be a central focus of a job application. What else do we know about the laterals and how they're involved they are in the lateral market, who they bring in? Um, I know that I've seen a lot of that is a high percentage of government attorneys. They just opened in Frankfurt with uh, two Latham and Watkin, Watkins partners, uh, corporate partners, um, which was a big uh, coup for them, um, I'm sure, hiring from Latham. Um, they are also in uh, Beijing and Hong Kong, and um, they're looking to uh, expand international internationally. In Washington, um, as you indicate, uh, they uh, are, are very well known for hiring out of the Solicitor General's office in the Department of Justice, um, and go and that's in I think partly. Uh, uh, Part of the reason that their Washington office is very highly regarded is that they get the best people. They go after the best people and land many of them uh, coming out of the federal government. I think they had three cases at the Supreme Court this past year. They have a big Supreme Court practice. Yeah. Well, that's headed by Olson. And, and I, I don't think anybody uh, in the, the current era is uh, seen as a more prominent Supreme Court uh, litigator than, uh, than Ted Olson is. Um, he, he's been very successful over the years. And uh, again, while he uh, has a conservative political pedigree, um, as a practicing lawyer, that really doesn't play a role. He represents a lot of different kinds of interests, although obviously primarily corporate interests. It's not It's not as if they're handling the ACLU's docket on a day-to-day -day basis, although he did uh, significantly handle the gay marriage case. I guess maybe just one other notable, notable point is their growth in, in New York. Uh, they've really beefed up their white-collar defense practice, uh, recruiting prosecutors. Uh, Reed Brodsky came out of um, uh, the, uh, the 
U.S. Attorney's Office. He was a big uh, insider trading uh, prosecutor. And Reed played a very big role in the Chevron case as uh, one of uh, Randy Mastro's uh, top deputies in, in that massive case that where they, it seemed to me that uh, Chevron uh, was never represented by fewer than 25 uh, Gibson Dunn lawyers at a time. It was They showed up en masse. He has a reputation of, of just being an absolute workhorse, you know, like pulling all-nighters and, uh, you know, doing whatever it takes. When we talked about KNL Gates, there were a lot of challenges that firm was facing. We haven't really talked about many challenges that Gibson Dunn is facing. Do you know of any? Is there Are there things where they struggle? Are there things where they're having, you know, what are the challenges for a firm that is this high in the rankings across the board? Well, I think... Uh, Gibson Dunn has benefited, and this is, again, has nothing to do with the substantive positions they take or the nature of their clients, which, depending on one's orientation, you might want to criticize. But viewing the firm as a business, you know, they've had a very coherent uh, strategy of, of being a large firm, a global firm, but one focused very closely on litigation. So, um, you know, they, they've been able to attract over time uh, a really impressive array of top litigators and, you know, more so than uh, the types of firms that they're ordinarily compared to, which are more spread out in terms of their specialties. Uh, there's a coherence at uh, Gibson Dunn that I think is uh, unusual. I, I think it is seen as evidenced by the comment from the Chevron uh, general counsel as one of the better managed uh, firms. I mean, th- there are a lot of management problems in, in big law, um, a lot of insecurity, a lot of instability. There, the observation is always made that that even successful law firms are, are a pra- only a practice gr- defecting practice group or two away from being in real trouble. Um, and it's kind of hard to imagine the uh, juggernaut that is the Gibson Dunn uh, litigation department, you know, being in that kind of trouble. I mean, they're they're big enough and they're reputationally strong enough uh, that for the moment, as a law business, um, they seem you know relatively stable. I would say the same thing. I mean, when I was looking at it, just from the outside, I mean, it's looked at as a litigation first, probably and transactions second firm. But then when I did some research, um, you know, according to Bloomberg data, it's the 13th highest ranked uh, law firm by deal volume over the past year. Um, It recently advised uh, St. Jude's Medical Center um, in its uh, sale to Abbott. So it seems to be growing in, in, in that area as well. So one other thing that was in the news this week was their involvement in Bridgegate, and they were hired by Governor Chris Christie to represent the state of New Jersey. And reportedly, it's been a a very lucrative engagement, uh, resulting in the taxpayers of New Jersey paying some $10 million um, for uh, Gibson Dunn's uh, labor. And the the main piece of of work they did was the... um, putting together of a report um, that largely exonerated uh, Governor Christie. And that was very controversial because it was seen um, by some uh, critics of Christie and his behavior in the Bridgegate uh, scandal as as basically being a whitewash um, uh, uh, operation. And uh, the Gibson Dunn firm, uh, once again, Randy Mastro, uh, who's very 
politically uh, well-connected among his other uh, attributes, uh, headed that that work. And there was uh, controversy uh, in recent days over whether Gibson Dunn lawyers would be forced to testify in the ongoing litigation involving former uh, aides to uh, Governor Christie. So that's a, an illustration of the fact that uh, the kinds of cases that Gibson Dunn gets involved with sometimes have that public, very public and potentially controversial uh, edge to them. Um, but all the while, they're still um, making a good living from the work they're doing. Is that a reputational hit on some level or is it just zealous advocacy that's going to be appealing to more clients? I, I think that, you know, for some people, um, you know, who are looking at issues having to do with integrity um, and uh, and political credibility, uh, I, I think it, it may result in, in some type of blemish. I think you'd be less likely, for example, probably to see some Democratic politician hire the firm for a similar uh, undertaking. But that would have been the case anyway. I mean, although it's not seen overall as a, a partisan firm, and certainly it employs both Democrats and Republicans, I think it's better known for its uh, its high-profile Republican uh, partners. Um, I don't think it, it has much effect uh, on the corporate general counsel trying to decide um, which law firm to hire for a, a, a bet the company kind of litigation because the Bridgegate uh, engagement was so idiosyncratic. Um, I don't think it, it falls into the category of being uh, labeled as either a win or a loss uh, for, uh, for the law firm. That's all for this episode. For more on the business of law, check out biglawbusiness.com. While you're there, sign up for our daily newsletter. You can also download our new mobile app from the iTunes App Store. If you'd like to write to us, our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com. Follow Big Law Business on Twitter at biglawbiz. Follow Paul Barrett at author PM Barrett. That's Barrett with two R's and two T's. Follow Casey on Twitter at Casey underscore biglaw. Follow me on Twitter at Josh Block NYC. Big Law Business is a production of Bloomberg BNA's cross-platform businesses. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss it.